this was really used by middle class, blue working class, white neighborhoods to keep middle class, blue working class, African Americans and other minorities out of their neighborhood. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanefanter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Aradia Soud is an assistant professor of economic analysis and policy at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, and Rotman School of Management. She received her PhD from the University of Minnesota and is a member of the Mapping Prejudice Project. Her research interests include urban economics and industrial organization. I asked her to tell me about her work with William Spiegel and Kevin Ehrman Solberg on the long-term impacts of housing racial covenants. So hi, Aradia. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on your podcast. That's a pleasure. So I'm excited to talk about this research project where you have this ambitious task to look at the long-term effects of historic racial discriminatory policies. And I wanted to first ask you if you could tell us why looking at initial conditions matter today, especially when we want to study inequality in urban economics. In most urban settings, initial conditions matter because a lot of policies that take place after, you know, whenever the city was first developed end up mattering even today. So in our example, where covenants were placed were also places where parks were placed or highways were placed and all these things live in cities for centuries later on. So studying the effect of how some of the initial decisions were made, these can have very persistent effects even today. So like you said, you focus on one particular discriminatory policy, which is racially restrictive covenants. I wanted to ask you if you could tell us what it was in practice, how prevalent it was, and how they were introduced. So racially restrictive covenants were clauses in property deeds that prohibited sale or rental of that property to specific racial and ethnic minorities. They were first introduced in San Francisco Bay Area in 1899, targeting Asian Americans. And after 1920, they really took off in most of the northern cities in the U.S., as well as in Canada. And the way that these covenants worked were they were really a private instrument where either the developer would add the deed to the housing clause or a bunch of neighbors would come together, you know, add the clause in all their houses. So it was a way to limit who was living next to you, either through the developer or by people coming together by themselves. So you look specifically at the impact of these covenants in the city of Minneapolis. Could you tell us why you choose to look at this specific city? Yeah, so there are two reasons. One is that because the data is so minute, right, you need to go through every single house and look at their historic sales documents and figure out which one had these racially restrictive clauses. The data actually doesn't exist for anywhere else in North America, except for the city of Minneapolis and its suburbs. So part of the reason we study Minneapolis is for data-driven reasons. The other reason is that unlike coastal older cities, Minneapolis was a relatively young city 
when these covenants are active, which is the first half of the 20th century. Minneapolis did not have racial zoning. It did not have a lot of other policies that predated covenants. So they really created initial conditions around which a lot of things around the city grew and developed. And so that's also a reason to look at Minneapolis as a case study to see the effect of covenants of the past on present day outcomes. Because other type of racially restrictive policies could have been implemented after, right? So there were policies before, like cities in the West and East had specific racial zoning. So they literally made areas where people of color could not come in. Or they had very specific industrial zoning where they put industries right next to African-American areas. After covenants, there are also other policies, like where the highways were built, what the redlining maps look like, how the school attendance zones were set. However, because we have covenants as the first starting point for Minneapolis, we can look at the effect of covenants on which, you know, how the highways are built, how the redlining maps are grow. So it provides us an initial starting point for Minneapolis. The case study of Minneapolis allows you to use some specific data sets. Could you walk us through the different building blocks that you use for your empirical analysis? Yes. So our key data is data from Mapping Prejudice that collects data on racially restrictive covenants for all of Hennepin County, which is where Minneapolis is. And the data is collected in a really, I think, a cool way because the data is crowdsourced. Five people look at a historic property deed and figure out if it had a covenant and when it was added and what the specific deeds were. And so over 3 million pages are analyzed to figure out which house had a covenant and did not. Now that's data on historic covenants. To see the effect of covenants on prices, we need to collect data on prices. Our price data for present day comes from Zillow as well as tax assessor data for Minneapolis. And our historic price data comes from looking at mortgage documents for houses that were sold in the time period that we're interested in. And from the mortgage documents, we can infer what the price would have been in the 1940s and 50s for those houses. We also get some neighborhood data on where people of color live and own houses in the 21st century from the Census and American Community Survey, ACS. So you use one specific Supreme Court ruling for your empirical strategy. Could you tell us more about this? So as I said, covenants were these private instruments that were legally enforced up until 1948. In 1948, there was an unanticipated US Supreme Court ruling that said that these covenants were no longer enforceable. It doesn't mean that they're not sitting in your clause. It just means that if your neighbor who had a covenant decided to sell the house to an African-American person, you know, that person before 1948 could have taken you to court and sued you for selling your house to a person of color. Now, this unanticipated 1948 Supreme Court ruling gives us a breaking point because it helps us analyze similar houses and neighborhoods that were built right before this ruling and right after this ruling and see what the difference is on present day outcomes is if we just compare these houses and neighborhoods that are very close to each other and very similar with each other. La minute technique. 
So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their work. And I wanted to ask you about the key assumptions that you have to make with this fuzzy regression discontinuity design that you use with the time rupture. The key assumptions we're making here, one is that in fact, after 1948, there was changes when covenants were made unenforceable, there was actually change on people of color moving in in certain neighborhoods that they couldn't have before. We test that assumption and it holds to quite a large extent. The second assumption we have to make is that houses were not being built in different areas before and after this ruling because, you know, Maybe the north of the city has different amenities than the south of the city. So we control for some of these location differences by comparing houses and neighborhoods very close to each other. And then the only difference between houses that were built before 1948 and after 1948 becomes that the ones that were built before had a positive probability of having a covenant and the ones that after, they did not have an enforceable covenant. So when you implement this strategy, what is your main result? What do you find? So the main result we find is that even after controlling for housing characteristics and neighborhood characteristics, if we compare houses that have a covenant versus those that did not, the houses that have a covenant have a 3.4% higher home value in 2018 than the ones that do not. And this is not coming from differences in school quality or distance to highway or housing characteristics or location characteristics. The channel here is the effect of these covenants. So one of the other main results we find is that these covenants were located in lower middle class, blue working class neighborhoods. And this is a somewhat surprising result to me, but if you think about it, it's not that surprising. Richer neighborhoods had price as a mechanism to keep people of color out. And this was really used by middle class, blue working class, white neighborhoods to keep middle class, blue, working class, African-Americans and other minorities out of their neighborhood. So a pathway for people into middle class was blocked through this mechanism. So that's an interesting finding as well. So according to you, what can potentially explain such a persistent effect? So there are two basic channels that can explain this persistence. One is differences in public amenities that I had hinted before. So where they put covenants, they also made parks near them. We find evidence that they changed the shape of lakes to you know, have lakes right next to the covenants. They put highways away from areas that had covenants. So the parks and lakes being away from highways, these are amenities that people value even today. So the difference in public amenities between covenanted and non-covenanted areas is one of the channels through which you could have persistence. The other is sorting, or someone can call it homophily bias, as economists call it, or if you can plainly call it racism, where if people of one race prefer to live with the people of their same race, covenants provide initial conditions around which it becomes an all-white neighborhood. Then someone moving in the 80s may choose to live in an all-white neighborhood if they prefer to live with people who look like them, and that will persist as well. Disentangling the preferences of people from public amenities is a difficult task, but those are the two channels through which one can find persistent effects. And talking about that, so how does it impact racial segregation today? 
For racial segregation, we don't use house level analysis. We do slightly broader group level analysis, which is at census block levels, the US census block levels. And what we find is that if you increase the covenant's share by 1% in a census block, it reduces African-American population by 14%. And it reduces where African-Americans own homes by 19%. So it's very clear that African-Americans are living and owning homes, even today, in areas that did not have racially restrictive covenants. So given these results, what do you think are your next steps, especially why is it so challenging to come up with the right policy recommendation in this context when you look at these long-term effects? So there are a couple of challenges. One is, as I said, it's very difficult to disentangle how much of these differences are coming from people's preferences versus differences in amenities. Now, if it's coming from people's preferences, it's hard to do policy around it, because if this is what people prefer, then it's hard to, you know, force people to do things that they don't want to do. If the difference is coming from the fact that places that did not have covenants, you know, need more parks or better access to lakes or better schooling, that would be an easier fix. But it is hard to disentangle how much of this persistence is coming from these two channels. The other thing is, after covenants, you had redlining, highways were built, various other policies. So covenants provide initial conditions, but then the effect sort of just grows with each and every policy. So it's hard to disentangle exactly how much covenants did versus say how much highways did, but it just provides an initial condition. Thank you. So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you could share with us a recommendation. The book that I think that is related to this topic and very useful is called Segregation by Design. Local Politics and Inequality in American Cities. It's a book that came out in 2017, so it's relatively recent. It's a book by Jessica Traunstein, who talks about covenants, but also redlining, highways, zoning, and all the different policies that have led up to very segregated, both in terms of race and income cities in US. And she doesn't cover Canada, but similar principles apply in Canada. Thank you so much, Aradia, for your time and for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Van Infanter in Toronto. I want to thank Clémentine Benoit for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.